Imagine turning on the TV one day to find all channels broadcasting the same thing. Or you're driving home from work and all the radio stations are talking about a single piece of news. Now imagine that that news is the discovery of an identical Earth. One that features identical versions of you, me, and everyone else on the planet. We can communicate with this Earth, and it's visible in the sky right outside your window. You're listening to Hollywood Science. In each episode of the show, I'll take a look at a particular film to see how the science fiction holds up to the science fact. In this episode, Another Earth and the Search for Habitable Planets. I'm Alex Contis. The discovery of this identical mirror Earth is the focal point of the 2011 film aptly named Another Earth. It was the debut feature-length film from director Mike Cahill and was co-written with lead actress Britt Marling. The film went on to win the Alfred P. Sloan Award at the Sundance Film Festival, which is a prize reserved for films with science and technology as a central theme. This is Dr. Joan Tallis, the United States Planet Earth. Do you read me? Is anyone out there? We're getting feedback. Let's try another channel. Hello? This is Dr. Joe. What does that mean? I don't understand what that means. Another Earth is not the first film to feature this idea of a second Earth-like planet, and it's not even a particularly new concept either. The idea itself is so old, in fact, that it can be traced as far back as the 5th century BC and credited to the ancient Greek philosopher Philolaus. Philolaus was one of the first to believe that the Earth was not the center of the known universe, and he developed a theory to support this. He didn't go as far as suggesting that the Sun was the center of the universe, though, as this was an idea that could have seen him persecuted for spreading. Instead, he suggested that the Sun and the Earth both revolved around an unseen central fire, not visible from Greece. As part of his theory, Philolaus said that at the far side of this central fire was another Earth-like planet. He called it simply the Counter-Earth. According to Aristotle, the Counter-Earth's existence was to explain eclipses and provide a balance in the cosmos, almost literally as a counterweight to our Earth in space. And if that sounds a bit far out, even by ancient standards, it's possible that Aristotle was being very tongue-in-cheek in his analysis. He would go on to propose a geocentric theory of astronomy that had the Earth at the center of the universe and is credited for our understanding of a spherical planet. So it's perhaps little wonder then that he probably scoffed at Philolaus's counter-Earth idea. <laughs> Fast forward a few centuries and we're able to rule out the existence of a second Earth at the far side of the Sun simply because we'd be able to observe and detect its gravitational effects. And this was actually one of the criticisms of another Earth. It neglected to show the effects of a second Earth parked alongside ours, and only featured it in a scene that was eventually removed from the final edit. Some further evidence to debunk the counter-Earth theory lies in our planet's orbital pattern. 
For a counter-Earth to remain at a diametrically opposed 180 degrees away from our Earth, both planets would need to be following the exact same perfectly circular orbit around the Sun. And you could be forgiven for thinking that we're traveling on a circular route, when in fact we're actually on an elliptical pattern. Think of it like a slightly squashed circle with the Sun at the center of it. That's the outline we're following. And because of this elliptical pattern, our Earth travels around the Sun slightly faster the closer we are to it. So if there were two Earths, we'd be able to detect the variation in the distances between them relative to the Sun. And since we haven't noticed anything, we can discount a second Earth being in our solar system. So where does that leave us? Well, we now know that the Earth is not the center of the known universe, nor is there an invisible celestial body that counterbalances our planet either. So we've begun to cast our sights further afield to look beyond our own solar system to search for habitable exoplanets. Knowing that our sun is just one of the billions of stars that are within our galaxy alone, it's therefore conceivable that at least one, or more likely a great many of these, has another Earth-like exoplanet revolving around it. In fact, it's not only conceivable. Each passing year has seen our estimate of the probability of life in space increase, along with our capabilities of detecting it. That's astrophysicist Dr. Richard Berenson speaking at a 1972 symposium on extraterrestrial life. Dr. Berenson also appears in another Earth, providing narration to explain some of the effects of a second Earth. In the grand history of the cosmos, more than 13,000 million years old, our Earth is replicated elsewhere. There's another you out there. Now you begin to wonder, is the other me made the same mistakes I've made? And is that me better than this me? The point he's making at the symposium is that the number of stars in our galaxy alone is so staggeringly large in the order of 10 to the 11 or more. The probability of stars having planetary systems is so high, we think perhaps half. The probability that those planetary systems might be comparable with our own and that the stars have some kind of an echo sphere, a sphere in which the radiation is suitable for life, that it's not too hot, not too cold, meeting the other criteria, seems so reasonable. And he raises a critical idea in the search for life in habitable planets, that they must be able to support life by providing the right conditions for survival. Because for life to exist, it must be made of the same elements that principally constitute it here. Carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, and oxygen. Those four elements constitute about 99% of living material on the Earth and I think are likely to come out that way wherever life exists. That's the late Dr. George Wald, then a professor of biology at Harvard University, also on the panel at the symposium. There's one more thing that needs to be right for life to be supported on a planet, and that is the planet's proximity to its star. In the field of astrophysics, this is known as the Circumstellar Habitable Zone, or the CHZ. It's an area within which a planet is not too close to its star and too hot like Mercury or Venus, or too far away and therefore too cold. Another name for it is the Goldilocks zone, because the conditions have to be just right. Knowing this has helped research groups such as the SETI Institute focus their efforts on finding habitable planets. On March 7th, 2009, 
NASA launched the Kepler Space Telescope, and with it, the world's first mission to search for Earth-like planets in these habitable zones. The Kepler mission made up part of NASA's discovery program, a series of highly focused, low-cost missions. In the case of Kepler, $600 million is considered low-cost by NASA standards. Named after the astronomer Johannes Kepler, the telescope features a 95-megapixel array of cameras, photometers, and other probes to aid its search for exoplanets. It's so powerful, in fact, that it could detect a single porch light being turned off at night on Earth. Right now, you might be wondering how it's possible to identify planets orbiting stars hundreds of light years away using just a telescope that's in near-Earth orbit. Well, the method of discovery sounds pretty straightforward. It's called the transit method because it detects changes in brightness that occur when a planet passes in front of the star. When this happens, it's possible to calculate the planet's size and orbit depending on the duration of this brightness change. Think of it in a similar way to how the moon blocks out the sun during a solar eclipse, except these planets appear more like small dots drifting in front of a giant light. The Kepler mission was only supposed to run for three and a half years until mid-2011, but it was granted an extension until 2016, owing to a need for more time to gather data. However, a series of malfunctions to the steering and stabilization mechanisms in 2012 and 13 rendered the mission untenable. All was not lost, though. On May 16, 2014, NASA announced the approval of the K-2 mission, using the same telescope and equipment, just in a slightly modified fashion. To date, the Kepler and K-2 missions have discovered almost 2,500 confirmed planets, with over 5,500 other candidates that need to be analyzed before being confirmed. And that's all well and good, but I reckon you're wondering if there are any of these planets that are at all like Earth. Well, good news. In April 2014, the discovery of a planet only 10% larger than Earth was announced. Because it's only slightly larger than Earth, the planet is believed to have a rocky surface. And because it's within the habitable zone, there's thought to be water too. And it has a really memorable name as well. Kepler-186f. Catchy, right? Just don't plan on visiting it anytime soon, as it's approximately 500 light years away. While Kepler-186f was the first planet discovered that's believed to be like Earth, it wasn't the last. In 2015, NASA announced the discovery of another planet approximately 60% larger than Earth. Again, this one was given a great name, Kepler-452b. What made Kepler-452b an interesting discovery is that it orbits a star similar in size and brightness to our own Sun. This one is really far away though, at 1,400 light-years, it's almost three times as far off as Kepler-186f is. So when do we find a planet closer to us? Well, to start off with, it helps to know that two of the closest stars to us are the twins Alpha Centauri A and Alpha Centauri B. At just four light-years away, they're practically our neighbors in space terms. Revolving alongside them is a smaller star called Proxima Centauri, and revolving around that, is the Earth-sized planet with another outstanding name, Proxima Centauri b. Even with the fastest spacecraft ever built though, it would still take 75,000 years to travel the four light years to get there. But because it's the closest known exoplanet to us, 
proposals have been made on how to explore it further. The Russian entrepreneur Yuri Milner has funded a research project that plans to send a fleet of centimeter-sized microcomputers called Starships to explore Proxima b. They would travel at 20% the speed of light, taking 20 to 30 years to reach the planet and then another four years for confirmation signals to return to Earth. This might dampen a lot of dreams of being able to get to another planet, since Proxima b seems to be the closest we'll ever get to another Earth-like exoplanet, and we just can't get there fast enough, at least not in the foreseeable future. So for humans to become a spacefaring species, we may have to settle for Elon Musk's plans to terraform and colonize Mars, which he claims can be done if we drop thermonuclear weapons over the poles. In case you missed that, we should drop thermonuclear weapons over the poles of Mars. He's not entirely crazy, though. In theory, for Mars to become a habitable and sustainable option for humans, it would need to be warmed up to create an atmosphere that could support life. For now, it might be more enjoyable to just imagine that somewhere out there in space is another Earth, one that has another you, another me, and another version of everyone on this planet too. Hollywood Science is created by me, Alex Contis. If you want to be kept up to date with the show, please consider subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, Google Play, Acast, Stitcher, or wherever you normally get your podcast. You can follow the show on Twitter, at HollywoodSci, that's S-C-I, and I am at LexCon if you want to say hello. Until next time, thank you for listening.